So luckily, we haven't failed too hard yet. But I think that's also a failure in itself. Welcome to How I Fixed It, a podcast where we cut the noise and learn step-by-step strategies entrepreneurs use to grow. I'm your host, Madhav Malhotra, and today I'm lucky to be joined by Hannah Kiyovsky, the co-founder of Cove. Hannah is a student at the University of Waterloo, working on an app that helps prevent mental health crises. I'm very excited to learn more from her about this unique experience designing this app, especially when it comes to user feedback about such a sensitive topic. Thank you again so much for taking the time to join me today. I am very excited to learn a little bit more about your story at Cove. And first of all, I'd love to hear how you actually got started with the business and what it is that Cove is building. Okay, sounds good. So Cove started as a fourth-year design project in systems design engineering in the fall of 2019, and we're part of St. Paul's Greenhouse, which is a social incubator on campus, and they have a workplace innovation program where they partner workplaces with students on campus for deep diving on problems that they have to help find innovative solutions. So we thought this was a great place to look on our fourth year design project for a meaningful problem to solve. And so one of the problems that we got partnered with was with the local health integration network in the Waterloo region. Um, They were having trouble passing mental health records or data when students go to different areas of health in the Waterloo region. So if they were to go to the hospital in a crisis, the university counselors and health um, services doesn't know that until the student tells. So there can be a, a large gap in care in that way. And they were finding that. So we thought this was a great problem for us and it had the potential to have a technical solution. So that was our partnership. But as we got into the research, we found that there was a bigger, well, not necessarily a bigger problem, but a problem that kept occurring from different people that we talked to about um, suicide intervention, uh, specifically something called a safety plan, which is some a tool that a person would have when they're stressed or distressed to use to help them come down from entering a crisis or to give them the tools they need to handle the crisis in terms of professional resources or tools to, to use. And so we kept hearing about this. So we thought, okay, the problem that we originally had was way too big for an eight-month project. There was no way that we were going to be doing something that could make systems talk to each other from the hospital to the post-secondary level. But we thought this area was so meaningful and, and we could really see the care that the counselors had about it. So we're like, let's scope down to safety plans. And then so Go was born. And so now it is leveraging digital technology to better administer and use safety plans, which are now currently just a paper document that a professional would make for a patient. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us a little bit more about your own personal background and what motivates you to work on this problem? Uh, Yeah, so like I said, my background is in systems design engineering at Waterloo, and some of my past co-ops were in, I did some QA, I did some software development, uh, but then I landed my feet into more of a UX type position and project design position, 
that's kind of where my passion is and what I like. And in with systems design, like we were very human focused in a lot of our design classes and, and really putting like human engineering uh, more so than like systems engineering, like people first. So from there, I just, I started doing research. And in my last co-op, I worked for Point Click Care as a designer and I really like designing for healthcare. So that's what really drew me to the problem and working with the local health integration network because it's such an important area and and you can really feel the impact that you make there. Yeah, no, there is a huge impact to be made, but then also the added responsibility of making sure to get such an important application right. So Regarding your experience with design, and in particular, this niche of healthcare-focused design, could you tell us about some of the best practices or some of the important guidelines to keep in mind? Yeah, sure. When designing for healthcare, there's designing for healthcare and there's also designing for a high-stress situation. And so we kind of have to mix a bit of both of those things. So especially with mental health, like, I think a lot of people have an idea of what a mental health app would look like, you know, calm, headspace, minimalist, and those give off the good vibes that you need. But there's also um, a lot more design considerations you have to take with that high risk situation that you're in. So, um, and also just knowing those users. So a lot of the times when people are on medication for severe mental illness, they will have tremors from their medication and they're on just as a side effect. So swiping, for example, some swiping is not necessarily something that should be core functionality in the application. Minimal decision-making, especially in a crisis, things just need to be given to them. They shouldn't have to make a decision between a few options. Everything should just be laid out for them, very easy to follow. A lot of what we've done recently is thinking about what does the image that we have convey? Because while you need to be ready for a high state situation and a crisis state and have everything there, you also need to create a very warm, welcoming environment with your health, um, and especially mental health. You're, you're in charge of your well-being and making sure that you follow through with whatever your doctors have told you to do. And it's so easy to beat yourself up. Oh, you know, it's my fault. I have X, Y, Z, whatever it is. So creating that environment and and not make the user feel bad if they haven't completed the task either, right? Yeah, one thing that I find really cool here is it's not entirely about the stereotypical things you might associate with healthcare and mental health focused design, like having a calming color or a calming font, but... Instead, it's a lot more sophisticated when it comes to making a user feel calm in the process of going about different actions. Yeah, exactly. The UI itself has a lot of important things that go in it. Like, you don't want a red application when you're doing something like this. That We know that. But there's a lot of small details, especially moving from something that was once paper, you would just read and then go do it yourself. Now you're, you're trying to leverage all of these things that a phone has the capability to do. Well, now you have to think about all these interactions that these people are going to need to do on their phone. And if, if you're leaving the app, for example, to go open a resource that might help them calm down, like Spotify, well, Spotify naturally takes you out of the app you're in and brings you to Spotify. And then the navigation of the phone might be a little tricky, especially if you are more distressed than, than normal, right? Then 
okay, now I need to remember how to get back to the safety plan app. So you have to think about all of those things and just, you're never going to get it perfect for a hundred percent of the audience that you have, but you need to make sure that you are considers you're considering it and you have some core values and things in your mind to come back to so that when you are making a design decision or you are making a new feature, how can you best represent and do it for the, the people that you're designing for, especially when they're not as accessible to you to talk to all the time. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about regarding the process of the design. And I've heard about design tools like doing personas and then doing user interviews and iterating. But in your case, well, you had a few problems with that and even interacting with the users to begin with. Could you tell us more about that? Right. So when we were in our fourth year design project, we struggled because due to ethics, you can't talk to vulnerable populations such as ours. So a lot of our information about our users came from professionals. They have very beneficial things to say, but it's not going to be the whole story, right? They only have their perception of their patients. So that's who we use mainly to make a lot of those design decisions, especially early stage, like this was our idea for the app. This is how it might flow or function. These are the things that we would do to make sure that overall high level, what we're doing is good. And then once we iterate, you know, they can help us make some more decisions. But again, they're not necessarily designers either, right? So they might not have something that follows good guidelines or is technologically feasible from a development standpoint. So you take everything a bit with a grain of salt. But the ways that we've collected some information about the population is, you know, through fly on the wall observation. So a lot of people post things on the internet, on Reddit, on Facebook about how they're feeling. And you can kind of understand you know, mindsets or, you know, common themes and and do some type of analysis to understand that perspective. And then also just looking through papers of people who've done more clinical research and and to, to build an understanding. But it is such a limiting factor to have not a nice customer called you with the people who are actually going to use it. Because right now, even since we haven't really talked to anybody, maybe they don't even use safety plans, right? Maybe the counselor says, here's your safety plan. And they're like, okay, thanks. And then never gets touched. We don't know. Yeah, that definitely seems like there are a lot of challenges from not being able to just sit down and do a user interview. Could you expand a little bit more on the alternatives you use, like going and searching online or finding other sources of feedback? Right. I think thing to consider when getting feedback for something is what's the research goal for the feedback? What are you trying to learn? Because there's going to be things, especially that we did, where we don't need the end user to be that person giving feedback, right? It's not, it doesn't come down to how you're going to use the app. It's about how usable is the application, right? So searching for the right user to give feedback can be a waste of time depending on the research goal. What kind of information am I trying to get from these people? And what is like the criteria of the person giving me? If I'm just asking if this flow makes sense in general, then maybe that's fine. If I'm just seeing how many clicks it takes me to add a contact to my safety plan, 
maybe I can do that myself. And then using friends to get the right people can help. I think surveys can give you a lot of insight, even if you're not showing them something about how they might use a platform, how they might use a software service, whatever it is that can be beneficial. And also just observing natural behaviors if possible. So for example, I was doing a project, this isn't relevant to COVID, but I was doing a project in mental health for, for a class. And I went to Reddit to see what people were anxious about at the university. So a lot of people's Reddit posts were about school anxiety and admission anxiety. And I looked to see the way that they structured their sentences and how they worded. I'm worried that this will happen. It was very anticipatory. So even though it wasn't like feedback on the the thing, my design idea I had for the app that I was building for that class, it gave me an understanding of that user that was valuable that I could take back to myself and say, okay, they probably would use it like this. So it's not the most perfect solution. It's not the only thing you should be doing before you say, here's an app, here, go download it on the app store. But it's a place to start when you're struggling. Yeah, wow. I can imagine how that must be stressful or challenging for your team. And I actually wanted to dive deeper into those situations where you only had the experts or advisors or counselors to work with and not the actual patients themselves. Could you tell us more about some of the pros and cons that you remember when talking to these experts instead of the actual users? So definitely pros for our case is that we're not putting anybody in a situation that they're uncomfortable with. Like I'm a very risk adverse person naturally. And so to think like thinking about putting somebody in a situation that might, you know, trigger them in some way, make them anxious, anything. I'm glad that I don't have to do that, especially right now to get some feedback that is still quite useful, but there's a limit to what the counselors can, can give us you know, they're busy people as well. Uh, And a lot of counselors are very different in how they treat their patients, right? An interesting story is uh, one of our advisors that we were meeting with regularly was um, giving us some feedback on on our first few iterations. And she said that, oh, no, I don't think patients should edit their safety plans because if they do, they can just use self destructive behavior, they can, you know, take away things that might help or put things that aren't won't, won't be that helpful so that it's almost like self-sabotage in a way. But then we met with uh, different counselors in different regions and they said, no, we want we want counsel- we want our patients to edit and, and take control. It, that means they're taking control of their health and they really they're invested in getting better. So two different mindsets on on the similar kind of patients and and, and illnesses that that might influence the way that the patient views a safety plan or views help or and just the how the how the counselors perceive patients in general in a positive light or a negative light and you can't you can't just go on one right you can't just say okay no editing maybe there needs to be something else then mm-hmm. and imagine that you're with your team making decisions with these different sources of information and you need to figure out what to do next. Could you walk me through how your team went through that process and any 
strategies that you use to make those tough choices? Right. This is something I still am learning myself on how to take advice and how what to weight advice because everybody knows stuff that I don't know. There's there's so many people with so much information that I I would love to know and love to hear and get their perception on. But there's also information that I know that they don't potentially know. And so being able to listen to what they're saying and not be biased by things that I've previously heard. Like, I think bias has the potential to play such a role here and I do my best to avoid it. But I like to try and take in the information as unbiasedly as possible with and when we go back to it as a team, discuss it and discuss how we feel about what they are saying and if it's conflicting with somebody else, why that might be, understanding and calling out those potential biases to the information and, and really understanding it. And I think there's never going to be a right decision if you're getting conflicting information. Well, maybe sometimes there is, but it's probably rare. So just knowing when you're moving forward with the decision that you've looked at all that criteria that you've set out. But yeah, like there's going to be people, especially when you're on a health tech startup, that they know business really well, but they don't know mental health. And there's mental health people who don't really know business. So the business people giving you mental health advice versus the mental health people giving you mental health advice, I think you'll be able to sift through the information and you really become that person that knows. It's just, it's just important that if you hear it from one source, that doesn't make it the source of truth. And I used to have that problem where it's like, I heard one counselor say this one thing one time, we have to pivot. No, no, let's hear a little bit more from other people, weigh it against what they say and see if, if we can come together and see some themes that we're not discounting what they're saying, we're just getting some other thoughts out there too. Yeah, it definitely is a very sticky position to be in. And to contextualize the challenges involved here, do you remember any examples of ideas where you had to get many different opinions or sort through different people's biases? The only thing that's coming to mind is uh, this one time I was talking with a post-secondary counselor and we were trying to validate our market. Like, okay, we have this idea on how to improve suicide intervention digitally. Like who's going to buy this platform? And we thought, okay, well, post-secondary institutions, they're quite busy. Health services are busy. Counseling services are busy. There's not enough counselors for students. So maybe they would want this, especially considering a lot of the climate around mental health on campuses. It's not that good. And so we met with a counselor there and she had said, oh, universities, they're very slow to adopt software. Even if they're innovative universities doing cool research, their health sector where they're helping students is slow to adopt. So we're like, okay, that's out. Like we need to go find another potential marketing stream. Whereas like maybe if we would have just looked at a different university or talked to some more people, we wouldn't have lost a few months where we said, okay, no, that the, we have to shut that door. Let's look for a new door where you can keep that one open, but maybe you're just snooping around some other ones for a bit. Yeah, I'm glad you know that's an opportunity now. And if I understand correctly, the principle is how do we react to these situations where we don't have all the information, we're trying to figure out which opportunity to go deeper into, yet we don't entirely know which door will be the door that ends up being the real opportunity. Yeah, and just not shutting the door when it's you've only heard from one person. So 
I think Bayesian thinking where you're using what you know and keep changing your perception, but not necessarily closing the door. Like you have to trust your instincts at to some level and your own capability of research. Like you wouldn't have thought that that was an opportunity if, if it didn't have some credit behind it. That's a problem also of being a student with imposter syndrome as an entrepreneur, right? You don't really know what you're doing yet. <laughs> Yeah, there definitely are so many challenges that come about due to that inability to trust yourself. And I think that it's really one of those things where you just need the real life experience of succeeding and sometimes failing to realize, you know, what the limits of your capabilities really are. And that is the final area I wanted to ask about with your specific experiences, more so with failure than success, because I think with your failures, those are the times where you can really process the lessons afterwards and figure out, you know, the specific insights that you can use moving forward. So would you be open to sharing some lessons you had to learn the hard way? So luckily, we haven't failed too hard yet. But I think that's also a failure in itself, considering how long we've been working on this. Um, we're a little slow to move on our ideas. And it granted, like, you know, a lot of my team has full time jobs now, and I'm a full time student still. So life does get in the way. And, and that has problems. But a failure that we had is just we were a little too scared to make mistakes at the beginning very walking on eggshells because we we build up in our head like and then we're not it's not that it's not a big deal but working on such an intimate product we were always so hesitant to ask people to talk to people to find information we don't want to break ethics we don't want to do stuff there are creative ways to get information there have been ways outside of my capstone project where I've just been on the internet, on Facebook, looking and finding things that are open, like, which is not a crime. But maybe if I would have known some of that information earlier, that would have made a lot of different design decisions of the overall system. So not being afraid to go out and get the information, I think, would have helped us early on. And then just keeping motivation within the team is it also a bit of a failure? Sometimes we get a bit of traction, you know, we win a competition or we had a really good call with somebody, but then there's time between when they can speak again or just things come up, uh, communication from the team gets a little weak and then our velocity has decreased a lot. So like we have been very sinusoidal with our movements, especially over the past year and the pandemic too. Like it's a weird time to be an entrepreneur and everything. So you can chalk it up to whatever, but I think a failure that we had was in our team just communicating where people are, how they feel, because passions change, feelings change, and it's okay to not want to work on stuff anymore, but you should be keeping open communication with the people who are on your team, especially when it is so small and, and you have to wear so many hats. How much time do you spend learning a new hat? I think that's also a failure um, that we had a bit just because you're only so many people and there's so many things that you have to do. For a while there, we were looking at how to incorporate as a nonprofit. I was trying to 
read the nonprofit act and learn legal jargon and how much time do I spend doing that stuff myself before I, you know, either get a lawyer, ask somebody who has more experience, when do I take off this hat that I'm supposed to be switching? Yeah, no, it is exactly that crucial skill to know when you are just pushing yourself to maybe learn something and get over your limitations versus maybe focusing too much on the wrong priorities and wasting your time. And I think this is just a general personal challenge that you continuously have to grow towards. So I really appreciate you sharing the details of that with us. And I think that's a great personal note to wrap up this podcast on. So thank you again for taking the time to show us a little bit of your journey and all of the challenges that you've overcome to get here. No problem. Thank you for having me.